Welcome to the Peace Corner podcast. This series is brought together by GPAC, You Know Why and CSPPS. Each episode will bring to you a different peace builder and their personal story. This season, we dive into the topic of inclusivity. How do we meaningfully bring this concept beyond tokenism? How can we truly involve women and youth in peace building? Young women and men still suffer from stereotypes, myths and policy panics that harm their agency and affect realizing their full potential for peace. The evidence is clear. Development is not sustainable if it is not fair and inclusive. Our efforts to build and sustain peace need to be democratized to include the communities most affected. Young people are our best chance in succeeding. In order to break the status quo and make the world a better place, we need gender equality. The fantastic phrase, women's rights are human rights, must become the spine of all our political work. Welcome to today's episode of the Peace Corner podcast. We're joined by Patrick Willier, who is GPAC's regional liaison officer for Eastern and Central Africa. He also coordinates a project on preventing the re-radicalization of youth in Uganda. Today, we're going to dive into the topic of the reintegration of child soldiers. So welcome, Patrick, and thank you very much for joining us on the podcast today. And so our first question for you, Patrick, is uh, what personally motivated you to become a peace builder? Thank you. Uh, the number of uh, factors that uh, I may say motivated me, um, some of them lead into uh, each other. Uh, one of those is the, my experience as a, a child. I grew up in, a, in Uganda, in a place that was a, experiencing uh, conflict. And in a, uh, most of the areas in Uganda, it was in a post-conflict uh, community. So at this time, um, everything had broken down. The social services were not there. There's a lot of fear. Uh, there's uh, still a lot of gun violence. Uh, we could not access uh, schools uh, uh, daily because of the fear of bullets. Uh, there's a lot of hatred uh, because of the divisions that had been caused in the country. So there is a lot of chaos. Uh, Uganda is trying just to rebuild itself. And we, uh, as I grew up, I felt, what is it that I can do to be part of the uh, change makers that can contribute to rebuilding uh, our country? And this motivated me to and increase my passion towards peace, to be able to change and at, at least transform what I was seeing. Uh, along the way, I also uh, happened to get a lot of skills in terms of peace building and conflict transformation. And this also uh, continued to motivate me into applying the skills that I have now to be able to be part of the, of the change process. And personally, I'm a love of peace. And so when I go in for peace, I'm doing what really uh, I love. Wow, that's really inspiring and it's really nice to, to hear such a personal aspect to your story. And I was just wanting to ask, you were talking about the fear that was kind of there existing due to the conflict and causing tension between the groups. Do you think that kind of has increased the, the ongoing tension and the, and the conflict that still exists now? Yes, they do. They did because uh, we have uh, a situation that is quite po complex. 
and most of the wars that we've had have been successive wars, one after another. For example, the one I'm referring to was led by a lady called Alice Lakwena. This was in Eastern, uh, Eastern Uganda. And then uh, after the defeat of Alice Lakwena, uh, one of the cousins now took over uh, to continue with the, with the struggle, with the rebel movement, yeah, and changed its name into what is, has been popularly known as the Lord's Resistance Army, led by uh, Joseph Kony. So, so it links, most of these wars have linked uh, into each other until what we have today. And of course, the root causes are still there. Um, things like feeling of marginalization, uh, the divisions that were there then have been uh, con have continued to be winded in some uh, in some areas, and the fear continues because as the divisions increase, it increases along say ethnic um, ethnic lines. And if, say, a rebel group is dominated by one ethnic group, then the other uh, um, feels not safe. And then uh, it, 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 it kind of perpetuates the process and increases the VNA in people. Thank you for that, Patrick. And um, can you give us a little bit more of a background to, to that conflict and the violence and specifically talk a little bit about how the youth were involved in this conflict? Yeah, the talking of the war between the government of Uganda and the Lord's Resistance Army, which is in short referred to as LRA. Uh, this was a long war uh, for over 20 years, since 1986. Uh, led by Joseph Kony, who is the was the rebel leader. Uh, this rebel groups um, based in uh, in Sudan, uh, and they would uh, leave Sudan, cross to Uganda, and make attacks, and then uh, uh, run back. So this happened for a period of over 20, uh, 20 years. Um, and the region that was most affected because of the uh, proximity was northern Uganda. It includes a number of sub-regions like Acholi and Lango. Uh, so at the moment, you may say um, the violence is silent, but the effects are so evident at the, even, even now, if we went to any part of northern Uganda, you'd feel the, the effect of the war. And how youth were uh, involved is that most of the rebels uh, in the, in, in, uh, during the, the violence was a comprise, compri uh, comprised of, of, of child soldiers. These are children who were forcefully abducted either from their homes or while going to to school, or whatever, they would make an attack and they find them. So at one time, ninety percent of all recruits were were children, and then the rebel group, uh, based on this, as the largest, the main its main re resource to abduct and uh, enlarge itself. 
Um, it is estimated that around uh, 38,000 children were abducted. At one time, we had an abduction of around of more than 200 children from one of the schools called the Aboke Girls in a district called the uh, Rira. So what would happen is that uh, uh, these children would be abducted, then they would be forced to kill their parents and forced to kill their relatives who are around. Of course, this was a strategy by the rebels to decrease their interest uh, and incentive of coming back. Uh, and then they would uh, walk thousands, hundreds of miles to South Sudan. Those who would fail to walk uh, would be killed because they would ask other uh, abductees to be to kill them. But this was just to instill fear, uh, fear in them. Uh, while in captivity, most of the the boys were uh, were taught how to kill and become rebels. And those who would try to escape would be severely punished. It was also a way of instilling fear for these children not to to escape. And most of the girls were forced to be sex slaves of the rebels. Um, and they would also do work like cooking for the uh, for the rebels. So a few of them managed to escape back into northern Uganda because that is where most of them had come from. And the, some of them were rescued by the government forces when they were during the the fights. Uh, after the during the after the peace talks in 2006-2007, many of them were also uh, brought back to northern Uganda. But then they would always come with a, a number of, of of challenges because it's like this is a a group of youth who had uh, missed out. These are generations that had missed out on the basics of life, who had missed out of on uh, education and the number of needs and they were in bad shape when they were when whenever they would come back we'll see someone with so many multiple needs and even as a peace builder you would wonder where to start from thank you for for sharing that uh, patrick it's really eye-opening to hear all the problems that have been faced by the youth in uganda and especially uh, the use of children as a resource and and things like that and uh, that kind of leads me on to the next question that I wanted to ask about uh, child soldiers and that's that there's a lot of stigma surrounding returning child soldiers especially uh, around their mental well-being. Uh, in your experience what barriers do the children who've been abducted by the LRA face when they are returning to their communities and what do you think can be done to overcome these barriers? Well, uh, yes, as you said, there's, there's, uh, there's a lot of uh, challenges in the in a bit to uh, return to their communities. One of them is the just the fear to escape because they had made been made to to fear because of if we, if someone would fear they would if, if someone would try to escape they would try to to kill that person to to death. They had to uh, beat him to death um, to cause to instill fear in, the, in other children. 
So there's that fear to escape that someone would not dare to escape from captivity. Uh, but those who were rescued or those who were able to escape still had a number of challenges. One is the lack of proper reintegration in communities. At the moment, at that moment, there were a few organizations that were trying to support these uh, returnees. We used to call them returnees, but then they would not uh, get enough reintegration before being uh, taken back into their communities. Because what in a few organizations did was what we call put uh, reception centers. They put up reception centers and they would receive these children, record them, be with them for uh, about two weeks, and then they would be sent to their communities. Of course, two weeks is not enough to rehabilitate uh, a person who has been indoctrinated for more than, say, uh, 20 years or so. Then while in community, there were still a number of challenges as they tried to go back in their communities. One of that is the stigma, and stigma came with a, a number of issues. Um, they, they faced from the communities. One, there was a general anger among the communities that these were perpetrators, that these are people who have been killing us, these are people who have been tormenting us, and we can't allow them back into communities. Now, that was a negative perception that uh, was a challenge to the child soldiers. Many of them looked at them as killer machines because they said, uh, the only thing they can do is to kill. There's nothing uh, valuable in them anymore. Many of them were referred to as uh, wives of rebels because many of them had been forced, uh, been raped, have been forced to become wives of rebels. So that one had a negative connotation. And then they would refer them as children of rebels because many of them had been born in captivity. So they were like, these are not part of us. We don't know them. These are children of, uh, of rebels. These are rebels. We can't uh, accept them in communities. So they faced a lot of uh, resistance. Um, and then some of them could even be rejected by their own uh, parents because of the experiences they had uh, gone through because of the reference to them as killer machines, even their own parents feared that if they accepted their children to come back into the, their homes, then there will be a problem to them. You would even think that this was partly true, because a few of them who had earlier come, there were incidences where they had killed their parents uh, because of the trauma, of course, uh, any conflict at home, they would, would, would end up into in, to killing. Some of them would kill their, uh, their brothers. Even at school, a simple fight could end up in, a, uh, in death. So there's that kind of uh, fear. And this was, you look at this as being like double trauma or double punishment because with all the suffering they had undergone through in the bush, while in captivity, they came back in their communities and faced such uh, resistance. Uh, many of them could not fit in school 
because of course in the bush, while in the bush they were not able to access school so they came back i would say they were overgrown but then the attempts to take them back to school but then they could not fit uh, well in school in terms of uh, moving along with the rest of the children and some children feared them as well and then they looked at them as a, a problem to uh, to them and uh, there is also a certain section of child soldiers whom would say were even a worse situation and these are children who were born while in captivity many of these had been uh, born out of rape so these are children who didn't know their father um their mothers didn't know who the father the father is so when they were brought back in a, uh, in their communities they didn't know what to do they didn't know where to be because they had no place they would call home because in a places like northern uganda a place you can call home is where your de- descendants were is that because the where your land is now land in northern uganda is uh, attached to tradition and clan so if you can't identify where your parents were where your grandparents were where your clan are or the clan members or the land that belongs to you you can't claim any land so it they ended up being homeless and many of them ended up uh, on streets Aden Kampala or in some places in northern Uganda um but we as peace builders one of the challenges we saw was around the multiple needs of these children when they came back uh as a peace builder you look at them and wonder where to start from for example you'd find uh, one child who has come back but this is a child who is a child mother so this is a child carrying a child this child has hiv aids because of the rape and the sexual uh, assaults and harassment and the abuse that went on in the bush this is a, a child who has no source of income this is a child who has no food this is a child who has no parents and physically of course not well some of them had the wound bullet wounds uh even some had still had bullets in their uh, in their bodies and then above all they were uh, mentally not well they were traumatized because of the experiences they had gone through so this it was a complex and uh, kind of difficult situation to deal with even from the children uh, perspective of the children themselves and even on the side of uh, peace builders that sounds really really challenging to overcome and it it sounds like there's issues for for the child soldiers themselves but also the communities that they find themselves uh, trying to integrate back into and so that kind of brings me on to to my next question which is uh, what issues did the communities face that they were receiving these uh, returning child soldiers can you tell us a little bit about that please Yes there were a number of um, issues uh, one of them is the fear <laughs> because you'd say they were between a, a rock and a hard place 
should we uh, receive them, should we not? And each uh, option had it is kind of negative <laughs> implications. So there was there's that fear to receive uh, to receive the uh, the children because of the experiences they had had, the incidences of uh, they had had about those who had earlier uh, come, and the kind of uh, um, uh, violence they had con continued to, uh, uh, to 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 inflict on on communities, and uh, there is also the, the issue of what to do with them in terms of uh, uh, justice because. Most of the community members were saying we need justice uh, as victims, and is like how do we how do we get justice from these children? Of course, it was very difficult to get a formal kind of justice uh, from them. Uh, the fact that these were mere uh, children, so a number of them tried to have what to go through the traditional mechanisms of cleansing to ensure that uh, uh, these children have, are able to, re to reintegrate in the communities and be able to forget the past and be able to reconcile with the, uh, the communities. Uh, in terms of justice as, as well, it was one of the uh, reference points for child soldiers is one uh, called the uh, Dominic Ongwen, who is uh, currently under the ICC in The Hague. Uh, now, this one, of course, he claims he was uh, abducted by the rebels when he was uh, uh, 10 years while going to, to school. So much as he's undergoing the ICC uh, process of trial, you also feel for, for such a person and you fail to, to decide, should we put him on the side of perpetrator or should we put him on the side of, of victim? So I'm just bringing this as a, a reference that there are so many people, so many children who are now like, uh, who, whom people, the community look at as this Dominic Ongwen, whom they are not sure what to do uh, with them whether they should treat them as perpetrators or, 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 or victims. Uh, so, yes, uh, the, the, what, what, what is the, the committee tried to do as, was to come up with the, some associations, especially using those who had been abducted to be able to sensitize and talk to the, to the children. Uh, but another challenge that the uh, that the community faced was the issue of street children, because while on the street you'd think they became more rough and the violence continued. You know, the traumatized child soldier on the street uh, can also be very dangerous. It's really interesting to hear about both sides of, uh, of the, the story. And then I wanted to ask you a bit about um, a successful story of reintegration, if you had one, of uh, returning child soldiers um, who were originally marginalised but have uh, managed to uh, be transformed and from using violence to positively engaging with peace. Do you have an example that you can share with us? 
Yeah, there are a number of isolated cases which you can look at as a successful. <clears throat> at one time, we had a, a, uh, some of the children who had been abducted from Aboke girls, one of, uh, some uh, part of the 139 children that were abducted from Aboke girls school. Uh, so we worked with the the children, the, the, some of these children in a place in a district called Lira District. Uh, these are children who had uh, very horrific uh, stories, very bad experiences, and when they came back, many still continued to cause violence uh, because would hear they will tell us testimonies of. Uh, what they underwent, the experience they went through in the bush, how they had been to, uh, uh, trained to kill. And even when they came back, they were saying, no, killing is okay. Some, some of them would just kill for fun. Some of the child soldiers. Because you would get like pride by just see, seeing someone die and feeling that, oh, I've killed and someone is would laugh at it and say, well, this is good, you know. So, but we we're able to, to work with them. We trained them in, uh, in peace building, gave them some uh, peace building skills. We we're able to take them through some trauma uh, healing sessions, uh, talk with them. We created platforms for just storytelling because storytelling to them was like the beginning of healing, just by telling their stories, they to to do, heal them uh, partly. So we engaged them in peace building efforts, and then they were able to. At the end of the day, most of them transformed into peace builders. Now they tried to reach out to those who had been abducted but didn't have such skills, engaged them. Those whom they engaged also failed ho at home. They failed. There is somebody who simply care, uh, who, who thinks about them, who care about them. Because many of them will say, by just having you around, by just having people reach out to us, is healing in itself. We also think uh, we are now human beings. It gives us a sense of love and that we can also be beloved. I mean, this all this stigma that was uh, going on. So this group was so successful in reaching out to so many other uh, child soldiers who had had similar experiences, transformed them, uh, brought them in, uh, in into group work, tried to come up with what we called connectors for peace, things that could bring the communities and these child soldiers together for, for the objective of enhancing peace and coexistence. For example, they would have football matches, sometimes between, say, the child soldiers and the rest of the, the community, just to feel that kind of coexistence. Many times we would go there and instead of putting like a, a team of former child soldiers and community members, we kind of mix them together to feel to make them feel that yes in peace building we all need each other and we need to to be together and then they started uh, music dance and drama 
uh, activities. So as they made this uh, sensitizations through music doesn't drama, for them in their heart they felt um, they felt good, they felt healed, but it was also a way of sensitizing other community members that yes, these are still human beings, these are still our sons, we need them, they need our protection, they need our love, they need our care. Uh, so and so in, in a way it also tried to uh, preach the gospel of love to the communities that had earlier rejected these uh, uh, former child soldiers. And then in a way uh, it tried to enhance the reintegration. Of course it's a process but along the way the negative perception kept on reducing. Oh, it's it's really nice to hear that activities like uh, football, drama and music can bring communities together that have been through so much. And it's really interesting to hear that storytelling works as a as a healing process and it gives kind of a voice to the trauma and creates that feeling of being loved, which I think is a really nice sentiment. And I want to finish off the interview by asking just one more question. Um, and what does inclusion mean to you? How do you think we can go beyond tokenism and how can we make peace building meaningfully inclusive? Well, to me, inclusion means so many things. <laughs> uh, it means uh, active participation. Uh, yeah, and when we talk of active participation, it goes beyond just participation where we see uh, for example, these days, youth, women, marginalized uh, persons being included to fill statistics. So the participation has to be active. It has to be meaningful. Uh, meaningful also means a lot. It means more than having youth and those you're trying to include uh, merely as passive recipients. For example, we have when we are, say talking about youth, we need to have uh, uh, to, to go beyond having youth as passive recipients of adult interventions, where interventions are made by adults and these ones are passively brought on board. Uh, and it also means uh, to me a situation where the, 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 those who are being included have uh, the power, have the the capacity to be able to participate in the processes. If it's a development process, from all uh, in all the steps in all the cycles of uh, of development, where they are able to make decisions and decisions that uh, that that support them, that help them, that can be able to uh, to empower them. Um, we need to be able. Inclusion also means being able to move these people who are whom we always say we want to include from the uh, from the menu to the table uh, what i mean here is many times we always say and we always hear leaders say oh now no youth is now a very is a priority we've included it on our agenda we have included women on the agenda we are now including uh, ethnic minorities on the agenda that is being on the menu but we need a situation where we are able to have these people move from the menu to the table 
where there are active partic uh, participants on the table of decision uh, of decision making. And of course, this one comes with the empowerment for these people to reach the table and make meaningful uh, participation. They need to be empowered. Uh, so we have to have these people to ensure that these people are empowered to have what it takes, to have the capacity to be able to uh, make meaningful uh, contribution. So, and as a, this is something we are taking seriously beyond tokenism, especially as in the uh, Eastern and Central Africa, the members of GPAC, to be able to ensure that uh, inclusion is one of the, uh, the key priorities where we are not talking on behalf of, of youth, where we are not talking, for example, on behalf of women, where we are not talking on behalf of ethnic minorities, but we engage them, build their capacity that they are, they are such that they are able to talk uh, for themselves and make decisions for themselves. Wow, that's really nice to hear all the work that you're doing to help engage and empower to achieve inclusion. I think that's really nice. And uh, thank you so much for sharing such personal experiences with us and uh, talking so much about such an eye-opening um, topic, which is really important uh, to understand. And it's been uh, such a pleasure having you on the podcast, Patrick. So thank you very much for your time. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. Thanks for listening to today's episode of The Peace Corner. Interested in hearing more from us? Subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you might be listening.